This is an European Public Service Union podcast. Welcome to Absu Podcast. This is another edition. I am Bojan Stanislavski. I'm your host. And today with me is the usual co-host of our program, Pablo Sanchez of Absu. And today we've got a very special guest for you, Jan Willem Godrian who is the general secretary of APSU. He is a Dutch man who has been living in Belgium for a long time now. He has served as general secretary of this organization since 2014 and previously uh, as deputy general secretary. Welcome to the program, Jan. Thanks for coming on and taking the time. A pleasure, a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Likewise, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on. So uh, before we get into uh, into the weeds, uh, let's have you explain what EPSU actually is, what it stands for, whom does it represent? Thank you, uh, Boyan. Uh, and uh, EPSU is the European Federation of Public Service Trade Unions. We are a European trade union federation um, representing about 260 trade unions, small and big, uh, across a range of public services from health and social care to people in European institutions, uh, utilities, energy, water, waste, um, and local and regional governments. Uh, many workers in culture institutions, in the social economy, uh, also belong to unions which uh, are members of EPSU. And in total, we say we represent the voice of 8 million public service workers in Europe and Europe meaning not just the European Union, but also countries like Iceland, Norway, Turkey, the Balkans, Russia, Central Asia countries. In EPSU, we are not just a federation as a platform uh, for exchange of information and good practice. We're much more than that. We are also a federation that seeks to influence the decisions of our employers, of governments, and of the European institutions. And within EPSU, we mobilize for action and change. Okay, uh, thanks for this uh, description and you know introduction. Uh, and uh, let's now go to, uh, to celebration, I would say, the World Public Service Day. Uh, that's something that you recently marked as EPSU. Uh, could you please uh, tell us what it actually is? What kind of celebration is that? And what action did you take? And uh, why did you decide to take it? Some years ago, the United Nations dedicated the 23rd of June uh, to public service workers, to civil servants, and to celebrate the contribution they make to the communities, a recognition of the work our members do day in, day out, 24-7, uh, to serve the uh, community. And we decided uh, a number of years ago to also use it as a day to highlight some of the concerns of public service workers. This year, this 23rd of June, uh, we use the day to not only celebrate the work our members do, especially during the pandemic, uh, I mean, Many of our workers couldn't stay at home because they have to deliver services uh, to the community, uh, take a wastewater technician, uh, health and care staff, uh, and so many others. Uh, so a day to recognize the work our members do, to celebrate their work to the community, but also as a day of uh, uh, resistance, uh, resistance to the commercialization and the privatization of public services, 
and a day of action, a day of action for better pay and conditions for more staff, more resource, resources for our public services. And actually, one of the main messages we want to pass on with this day is that Europe's public service unions do not want in the post-recovery, in the build, bet, build back better, we do not want a return to austerity policies, which have been so harmful for public services across the European Union. Yes, that's that. That's right. We've actually uh, spoken about particularly this problem of privatizing private, uh, sorry, privatizing public services uh, in in Europe and not only in Europe, in the global North in general, uh, with uh, uh, with American author Lee Phillips, uh, and uh, and and I think that it's definitely the most devastating experience that we have had over the last probably decade or maybe two decades even. Uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, when you say that this is the message that you stressed on during that particular celebration, during that day, the public service, uh, uh, World Public Service Day, then uh, how, did you, how do you think it resonated? And here I'd like to go to both of you. Uh, how did it resonate with the public? Did you get some feedback? Do you think that there's more uh, openness now to messages coming from uh, labor circles, uh, from labor leaders, from labor organizations, and is there uh, is there a chance to have more of a discussion on those particular issues, like the importance of public services? Because obviously, obviously, the pandemic has made every thinking person see how important uh, this area is, and I'm wondering whether this you think could be used today to leverage. Uh, to, uh, to, uh, it could be used as leverage in the public debate to to weigh in and, and, and stress on the uh, on the weight of that of that issue and and prevent further privatization and maybe revert the private the privatization that occurred so far. Uh, please, you go first, Jan. Uh, thank you. Um, that is a. Uh, a, a complex quest, set of questions you you have uh, 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 you have posed there. Uh, first, let me say that we are optimistic, that we are seeing the crisis and and what is happening as a opportunity, as an opportunity to stress the role of uh, public service workers, to stress the role of the state, if you want, the, st the role of municipalities, regions, uh, the, the the state to. Uh, address the pandemic. I mean, the recovery plans, the, the plans to keep people in employment, to keep to give uh, income to uh, people who lost their jobs during the pandemic or who had to stay at home. I mean, so the role of the state, I think, uh, has been confirmed and at European level, European Union level, also the role of the Commission as a as a mediator, as, as an institution who can provide support uh, has been confirmed. So, an opportunity for us to to raise uh, the to raise the role of public services also because and especially for health and social care workers there has been a recognition of the work they have been doing the enormous dedication and certainly in the beginning of the, of the pandemic uh, the work they had to do in very dangerous circumstances i recall there was no public private uh, no personal protective uh, equipment uh, they had to work long hours uh, and so on uh, and we know that across Europe, uh, including Russia, for example, more than 4,000 health and social care workers have died uh, and 
Amnesty and ourselves did a report uh, on that. And that was, we, we estimate as probably more, uh, we, we guessed as probably more uh, because the report didn't cover all countries. So an opportunity, uh, there, is, there is more recognition of the role of public services, but we should not forget that the structural issues uh, which were in place before the pandemic, um, the structural bias against public services, uh, that is still there. And uh, certainly in the European Union, we recognize that in the policies of the European Commission, in its policies for industrial strategy, uh, it, it lacks the recognition that public services, public infrastructure um, are, um, are the fundamentals if we want to actually change things, if we want to have a transformation of our economies uh, in, in the future. Uh, so yes, uh, optimistic, there is an opportunity, there is a possibility, there is more recognition, uh, but we should not underestimate that the structural, um, the structural bias against the public sector uh, because of neoliberal uh, policies, because of the domination of corporations of our society, uh, that is still that is still there. Right. So we're not free, definitely, from the corporate straitjacket, and and that that is a problem that's going to continue to be a kind of systemic problem that we're going to have to be facing. Yeah. But uh, Pablo, please weigh in now and tell me what is your take uh, on this. Do you do you consider this to be a uh, a point? where a serious struggle could be launched? Well, I, I think there is a, a, a good case for it. I mean, I recall like 15 years ago, you would say to most people, civil servant, and they would have a very a vision or, or a view. They would just have a perception of a very specific thing, which will be bang in the, in the media, in, 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 in jokes, in the press, in cartoons as like a white collar man, civil service, well-paid, uh, lazy. And that was really something I remember at, at the time that most of our people saying we, we faced that, that message. Huh? The right like you faced smears, is that what you're trying to say? Absolutely, like it was, absolutely. Right. The crisis in 2008 and the pandemic has actually transformed to the, in, to the eyes of many people that vision into heroes. I would say with applause. Uh, that was really spontaneous and so on. And it actually made visible hundreds of thousands of people that were invisible in society. Cleaners, uh, carers, um, that, uh, that might actually have a private employer, but this is a matter of privatization, outsourcing and so on. Um, personal anecdote, uh, in the school of my, of my daughter, there was a COVID... Uh, a positive case, and all the cleaners were in quarantine. And of course, the school was dirty. And the director said, well, "What can I do?" And and then there was, there was a debate about you know the need of cleaners and so on. And it was actually interesting to see that people would say, "We need more of them." Uh, and there was a debate: "Oh, we need a company." No, no, we need them in the school to be there. We'll be well paid. So I think there is a change in this, and also there is a change for public sector workers. I think the pandemic and the crisis, and seeing how society—I mean, basically seeing ref a reflection of what they knew, they knew the role in society, but they didn't see a, a, that to be replicated outside their kind of workplace. Uh, so that's basically given an extra sense of pride. And this is very important. And what we see now is that this is becoming into action. Huh? Mm -hmm. We see 
many strikes in many countries where these nurses, these carers, these uh, uh, social workers are saying, okay, we got the, the applause, we got all these messages. Now, we, when we ask for a 2 or 3 4% pay rise, which is not like, like is not going to bankrupt anyone, uh, we just get niet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw a strike in Switzerland, we're seeing a strike in the Netherlands, we're seeing, you know, it's, it's public in, in, the, in, in Denmark, nurses are on strike. I think it's going to be more and more the case. They're going to say, okay, we were told that we were essential and heroes and von der Leyen made two speeches in the State of the Union saying how wonderful it is and so on. Uh, we do not want to go back to the old normality. We want recognition in, in, the, ter- in the form of more stuff better jobs, more quality. Just to say that this, this, for instance, in the health and social services, what we have seen in the last period is just people dropping out. I mean, there are, uh, for instance, example of, of the nurse that basically took care of Boris Johnson, basically saying, I'm resigning for the NHS because of the treatment they gave me. Uh, it's it, it probably going to change the balance. So I think it is important that to, to take this energy forward and to basically drum uh, the, the 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 bang the drum, as they say, to to basically say we want another another relation. We need uh, a change. Uh, of course, corporations are not going to just say, yeah, here yeah, you are, fifteen percent pay rise. But uh, I think there is a change in, in 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 the dynamic. Now, of course, this is not something that will happen without uh, people continuing to work and, and, and mobilizing and doing campaigns and promotion. But I think um, we had a, a, an online event and that was very much the the line that was coming out. It's just, it's just like, we need to, to ask for more. We need to, to, to You're talking about the conference on the 23rd. Yes, yes, okay. I'm talking about that. And, and uh, I think there was something that came out of that, uh, of the trade union activists that were there is that... Uh, we need to reach out for the rest of society uh, because, I mean, what I think in my personal opinion is that the, what the applause, what the applause has actually showed is that there is a big base, a broad support for public services, and it just needs to be canalized in the proper way. And in some sectors, yes. I think we have seen this. Huh? For instance, just finish with that. Uh, every time that there's been a, a, a well-organized campaign, uh, reaching out from the union to the broader society on privatization of water. It's been a resounding success and water has been kept in public uh, ownership. And sometimes uh, things have actually been brought back uh, like into municipal uh, control. And then we have a new type of management. We are actually developing like, let's say public ownership 2.0. So there is uh, scope to be optimistic. It's not just gonna be waiting for the mana to fall from the sky, but I think I think there is a window of opportunity being open. Absolutely, uh, thanks for that. And I think what you what you just said about applause is is super important. And I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna switch over to that in in uh, just a second. But before we do this, I'd like to go uh, to Jan and to ask uh, about what you uh, uh, said, Jan, in in your uh, <clears throat> in your answer. Uh, you said you mentioned those recovery plans european union recovery plans and and you know they've got they give them those appealing names like next generation 21 eu and so on so and it looks great on paper and in their electronic presentations but you know here's the question which i think is essential because uh, okay everybody recognizes now the importance of public services and particularly healthcare and so on and so forth but has 
has those uh, have those plans, recovery plans, have they been consulted actually with the trade unions? Have they been consulted with with EPSU? Are you as as a labor as an important European labor leader? Are you satisfied with the extent? Uh, of, of of the uh, collaboration, whether if it had been, uh, whether if there was any, uh, the collaboration between the European institutions and the uh, uh, European Public Service Union, the one that you uh, are the head of right now. Please, uh, can you can you tell us a few words about that? Yeah, thank you. The the I think we should first recognize that the Recovery and Resilient Fund, as it's called in the European Union. Uh, and the money which has been made available to fund it and the ways in which it is being done, uh, the possibility for the European Commission to go out uh, and actually borrow money uh, on the international money market. In a way, that is a success for the trade unions. We have been pushing through the EGC uh, for plans like this. I mean, the extent should have been much bigger, uh, compare it with the funds uh, which are dedicated to recovery in the United States, uh, that's that's a much larger sum of money. Uh, but in itself, the idea of the Resilience Recovery Fund is a success for the trade unions who have been pushing, uh, who have been pushing for this. Although we would have liked more money, we would have liked to see it uh, the, the the balance uh, being bigger in terms of the uh, funds for uh, uh, for grant for grants rather than uh, interest-paying loans. Uh, so. Um, uh, that that uh, I would say is a is a success. In terms of the way in which this recovery resilience fund works at national level, uh, the national plans which have to be developed, uh, there it's much less of a rosy picture. And then I come back to what I said earlier. You know, I mean, there is a big opportunity. There's a big opportunity to use. Uh, money for public investment, to fund our public services, to fund transition, both in green, in, in more digital uh, digital developments. Um, but that opportunity at national level uh, runs into the structural issues, the, the lack of consultation of governments uh, with the trade unions, sometimes with the social partners, the employers uh, as well. Uh, and um, the unions are not involved in how to develop the national plans. Or they are just, how do you say that in English, perfunctionary uh, consultants. I mean, That's right. I sent you, you a letter, please give me your views. Uh, you send me back a letter on how that works. But there's no discussion uh, with the government. I mean, there's no possibility to change what a government thinks uh, is needed or to have with the government, the employers and the unions in discussion. Well, let's go for more investment here uh, rather than uh, than there. Uh, so in that sense, uh, they, uh, there's a lot uh, uh, wanting uh, in, the, uh, in the national implementation uh, of the Recovery and Resilience Fund. Uh, linked to that, I would also say that the feedback we have been receiving, uh, but uh, you know, uh, most of the plans are now coming in. Uh, the feedback we have been receiving in terms of the use of the money for actually investment in health or in broader public services, in public infrastructure, um, that is rather uh, that is rather patchy. Uh, not all of the, uh, the, the given the scope for investment after the 
austerity years. Uh, Pablo referred to that after the financial economic crisis in 2008, 2009, and then the austerity plans. The need for investment in public services and in public infrastructure is enormous if we want to make the transformation to a society um, which is actually delivering for, uh, for Europe's uh, people and builders uh, for, for a future. Uh, and so uh, that, that, is, that is still uh, not, uh, I mean, not clear uh, if we achieve that. To, to give you an example, uh, you might remember there was the, the European Commission came with a, with a proposal to fund its European Health Union. Uh, in September, October uh, last year, uh, and governments cut the proposal from the European Commission, which I think was about 9.1 or over 9 billion euros, um, okay. back to 1.7 billion euros. Uh, and it was only because of action of unions across Europe, uh, uh, and we, we did that before a uh, health council meeting on the 29th of October last year. It was only because of our action uh, that some of those plans were uh, revised and in the end uh, the funding was I think in the order of 5.4 billion. Uh, a, a, a huge success again for the unions but not to the full extent of what the commission uh, even proposed and of course the proposal of the commission uh, is probably not uh, the full extent to the funding uh, that is needed to realize uh, how we build uh, resilient uh, health and social care systems uh, in the future. Uh, so uh, we should not underestimate uh, the possibilities we have, the opportunities we have, the great um, appreciation for the work of public service workers, uh, but uh, in, in a context in which we need to achieve structural, uh, structural change. Yes, I'm, I, I totally agree with you, and I'm uh, definitely of the opinion that it's the unions who uh, th that could potentially secure this. And I don't know uh, actually so much about uh, those structural problems and the way they look like in the West, because I'm, uh, you know, I'm based uh, and, and I've lived in Eastern Europe. And uh, I, I just have to say that I I can only see the unions making sure that those mon uh, that the money invested. Uh, you know, in, in all the particular countries, in all the different countries, that they are spent, the majority of them, or, or a large portion of them, on uh, healthcare. Because what the pandemic has shown is that the neoliberal destruction in Eastern Europe had a particular, uh, particularly destructive effect, where, you know, uh, in, in some cases, like, I don't know, Bulgaria, for example, where I'm from originally, you know, the 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 healthcare system basically resembles, uh, you know, systems that we know from the third world, really. And this is something extremely dangerous in a situation like, uh, you know, a global deadly pandemic, because uh, it's it's a very weak point for the entire European Union, not, not just for, you know, the Balkans or the region or whatever. It could just be, uh, you know, a, a very weak point that is going to strengthen all the dangers if there is no you know, relative at least proportional equality of public services, particularly in uh, in the sector of, of, of healthcare. I think so. Yeah, I totally, I, I totally agree uh, with you. And uh, or, all right, guys. So let's switch gears now to the question of applause, because you both referred to it, and I, th I think it's something that we definitely uh, we should definitely discuss uh, both 
critically and, 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 and in a positive manner, because on the one hand, I, of course, understand that uh, those workers that were uh, that have been called heroes and, and that have been, you know, uh, described as, as, as soldiers fighting on the front or the front lines and so on and so forth, that's definitely, you know, good for their self-esteem and probably good for their, uh, uh, so to say, collective uh, morale. And, and yeah, well, that's good, but you know, this is definitely not enough. And you both said that, and the workers themselves are saying that in Switzerland, in other countries. Actually, there's a protest of nurses in Poland as well. It does. It, it's not in a form of strike yet, but uh, there are demonstrations and there are demands, very justifiable demands, uh, exactly for w- what you were referring to, that is pay rise, better conditions of work, more predictability, more stuff. Uh, you know, more safety and so on and so forth. All very rational uh, demands. And, you know, this is not something that, you know, you can uh, basically check off the list with applauding, you know, workers, with saying even even more often that, oh, you're great, you're fantastic, you're like, you know, you're defending us from the deadly virus, which they, of course, are. But that is not enough. And and uh, how is this applause received in in uh, in the unions uh, by the workers and and how uh, how is this a segue for a struggle for a real struggle for uh, for you know having better conditions of, of work Jan, please you go first I mean uh, the the applause has been important no to to workers I mean certainly in the beginning of the pandemic uh, if you're in the uh, under stress uh, uh, under under danger, uh, many of our members, uh, as, as I referred to earlier, had to work in, in extremely dangerous situations because governments and employers failed to secure an environment, a working environment, which was safe uh, for them. Uh, the lack of personal protective equipment, especially in social care, uh, and that then led also to uh, high mortality rates uh, among the elderly. Uh, one of Europe's uh, shames, uh, I think. Uh, in this pandemic, uh, and certainly one of the things we try to address also in the European Parliament uh, with our demand for for an investigation uh, into this. Uh, so in those circumstances, that applause uh, was important, no? Uh, and we have all seen these pictures, firefighters, police, citizens, uh, uh, organizing uh, measures of sympathy for those who, uh, who are struggling uh, under such difficult uh, circumstances and of course uh, i've also participated in these uh, in these applause uh, events and that was uh, that was important it also gave this, this sense of solidarity uh, in the community where you had a hospital uh, or an elderly care home and, and the whole community uh, was behind uh, behind those workers so that has been great that has been important we're now a month uh, almost a month and a half further into the uh, pandemic and what we see is that the structural issues which were there the structural issues the most important one is the lack of staff uh, is having its toll uh, on workers i mean the the mental strain uh, the the mental and physical strain uh, on health and care staff uh, has been uh, has been enormous uh, and the reports we receive from countries like the UK or Germany, uh, as well as others, are of workers actually wanting to leave the sector. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, 
workers are saying, yes, this is nice that people applaud our work, but where is, and Pablo mentioned that earlier, where is the, where is the additional staff we get uh, to help us? I mean, we can't go on like this. Uh, where is the where is the resources for uh, fitting out our, our hospitals or our elderly home uh, better? Uh, where is the where's the money for our uh, for our salary? I think, especially we have seen in social uh, social care, elderly care, home care, child care um, uh, that workers that these are workers we rely on in our society to make other things possible and they are among the lowest paid uh, first of all they're, they're mostly uh, women uh, and we know women uh, often have a, a, a double or if not triple shift uh, and they're among the lowest paid uh, in our society uh, whereas we rely on them so much and then as uh, in one of our uh, public debates we had uh, on the occasion of 23rd of June uh, somebody was saying uh, we realize those workers are low paid and then you have bullshit jobs uh, which are paid uh, so high uh, that there is a complete disconnect in terms of the value uh, workers do for society and what they actually paid uh, uh, the the, the wastewater technician who ensures that our uh, wastewater uh, is treated safely so that you don't have risks of illnesses and pandemics compared to uh, again a, a banker or an investment banker uh, and, and the money they receive i mean that there's, there's no connection uh, there and of course every job is important you could say uh, but it's about uh, the payment you receive and actually the value society uh, gives to those jobs. So that I think is what workers uh, in public services now want uh, to revalue their work uh, and that should go together with uh, a decent a decent pay increase uh, as well. Yeah, so it can't be only you know verbal appreciation and, and absolutely like not absolutely not. And uh, we uh, Pablo referred to it. I mean the the we will see a larger militancy of uh, of workers in health and in social care. We are already seeing that uh, and before the pandemic, uh, we counted in EPSU, there had been about uh, 100 strikes, demonstrations over the last two years of health and social care workers. Some of this continued during the pandemic. I mean, there have been actions in France, for example, uh, in Spain, uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, the child care strike of the 23rd of June is another example of that. Uh, and we will see more of this uh, in the months uh, and probably uh, the next year to come. I mean, those workers are saying it's not enough to applause uh, and, and also for government leaders to say, and including in the European institutions, you do a great job and they're not coming across uh, with uh, a better uh, if, uh, a better support for their work, both in terms of staff, uh, addressing those staff shortages, about 2 million uh, workers are lacking uh, in healthcare, for example, uh, and uh, a better valuing of the work through, uh, through decent pay increases. Yeah. Okay, Pablo, so please, yeah, tell me, tell me your take on this applause and... and uh, no, Jan Willem said one month and a half. I think he meant one year and a half of the pandemic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> one, like, of course, months. one year, every year. No, no, it's okay. But uh, yes, I, I, just just to, to like, I, I like to put like real life examples. I was talking to a midwife uh, in Belgium. Um, uh, 
who's been involved in the mobilizations. And, and she was saying two things. Um, one is, 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 at the beginning, was very tough uh, um, because all the protocols uh, changed. So Flora, she's in the in the giving birth place, whatever it's called, and uh, all of a sudden they couldn't touch people. And that she was like, I mean, we, we've studied for four years to basically help women and so on, and, and all of a sudden it's just like, don't touch masks, don't see. It was very difficult. Uh, with very little protective uh, equipment, so so there was a sense of the teams to okay, uh, you know what you mentioned before, Boyan, about like this sense of like we're at war and we need to fight. Yeah? So then equipment arrive finally, um, but then all these managerial techniques that were imposed uh, that been imposed over the years in hospitals, in, in social care, and so on, uh, they were suspended for a while, but they were quickly put back. Uh, so the system in Belgium is the more births you are in the hospital, the more money the hospital gets from the government. So the, the pressure for directors is just to basically, like a factory. And, and midwives say, this, this isn't a factory. This, this, this is the most human thing you can get. So why, why is not the system being revised? Um, and this is what people are asking. And this is a sector, this is not like industrial car workers who have a tradition of like on strike, one shouts in the in the floor in the shop and then everything stops. This is this is as Ian Willem said, mostly women. Um not very well paid, which they think twice before going on strike. And there is this is public sector that work that turns 24-7. Like if they went on a all-out strike, they are conscious that this has like very bad impact in society. People will die. So it's, it's not sure. something they do lightly. I mean, you can't stop a car factory and, well, I mean, okay, you can discuss that in day, but no, I mean, doesn't matter. It's just like two months down the line, you will increase the production. This is the human life and, and people that they know, people that they treat. We talk to carers, they explain to you that all of a sudden that the human touch they had in the in the elderly care just disappeared. And, 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 and many people in the elderly, they didn't, I mean, the old people didn't understand what was happening. So, for them to go on, on strike is not the first thing they do. It's not the easiest thing they do. They, they have an ethos and, and a tradition of like actually taking care of people. So just like withdrawing the labor is a, is a big thing. So the fact that they're actually resorting to this just should sign alarms. Uh, it's like desperation, isn't it? Uh, so, um, and they do it very consciously and they're conscious of the of their impact. That's why also I think there is an enormous move in, 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 in politics and in health and social services to, to build broad coalition with, with families, with patients, with the local communities, where a hospital is being closed. It's like, hey, this is affects everyone with the schools and so on. Because, you know, this is the fabric of the society, particularly in Europe. There is a sense of Europe is uh, good or bad. It's not like we don't have a private uh, healthcare system uh, like in the States. Some do, some have less, but, but there is a very strong sense of of the fabric of our societies. Is is this you know is wood quality in every in every town, a hospital where you can go, the school system, and so on and so forth. And 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 the actors of this happening, I think, need to be listened. Right? And the, the good thing is they are actually taking a lot of 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 a, a very uh, protagonistic role. Um, I mean, it's sad we got to this to this point, but uh, so be it. We are here, and uh, yeah, what I was saying, you know, the studies we had before the pandemic, and the pandemic just basically has created an enormous concentration of of problems, 
And I think now is the time where, where all these people are basically going to say, enough is enough. Applause was very good. And now is a, is a time to just not just applaud us, but give us support in our stuff. Yeah, please explain uh, uh, or, or like make a point here about this because you know as a journalist myself, I gotta say that definitely I did you know participate in that applause even and you know alongside with many other colleagues and and you know many other social groups uh, that understand the situation and that want to say thank you publicly. But then you know I just I'm just getting increasingly irritated by this because you can see all the world leaders like you know in Canada, US, and in Europe like going making those speeches. You mentioned Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, you know, saying, "Oh, this is great! This is fantastic! You are, you are, you know, the most wonderful people. We need you. We love you, and so on and so forth." Okay, where's the money? Where's the money? That's the question here, which has to be asked. Uh, and and uh, you know, <laughs> and where's the employment policy? That's another question because we definitely need. You know, in Bulgaria, because just because you mentioned like a personal story, it's not my personal story, but it's a personal story of a close friend of mine who lives in Bulgaria, and, and he said that you know during the pandemic we discovered that there are places in Bulgaria where there's only one doctor. One doctor, you know, literally. So this is uh, this is just you know the, the the kind of the symbolic dimension of the devastation that was brought about, uh, you know, by austerity and, and neoliberalism and, and all other notions of the like. So yeah, okay, guys. Since we spoke about the pandemic here, uh, you know, at length, uh, I would like to uh, tackle the question of the vaccines and the campaign uh, for vaccines for all for equal access to vaccines. And it seems like. Uh, Well, EPSU was the only organization, or the first organization, uh, at least in Brussels, uh, in you know the heart, the beating heart of the European Union, uh, that actually took this up. And uh, you know, we can see how many uh, organizations and, and governments uh, across uh, the European Union are actually requesting a waiver of uh, the WTO TRIPS agreement on the intellectual property property rights uh, of, uh, particularly on the you know on the COVID vaccine. Uh, or vaccines. Uh, so please, uh, could you tell us more about your involvement or your organization's involvement in, in this? How did you come uh, to this conclusion that it's got to be started and that it's got to be started by the organization, uh, by EPSU, basically? I mean, I think the there was quickly a realization that to get out of the, uh, to get out of the pandemic uh, and to deal with the uh, with the virus uh, uh, we will need to vaccinate people uh, and not just in uh, europe and uh, the european union but in broader europe and across the world but it has also shown again uh, how how should i say how unequal our world uh, is um, Uh, in the European Union, already between uh, West and Eastern European uh, countries, uh, other uh, countries in, in Europe, uh, and then in the rest of the world, uh, Africa, uh, countries in Latin America or Asia, uh, Pacific, uh, countries are not wealthy and can compete on international markets to gain uh, vaccines. So I think there was quickly a realization Uh, that if you want to come out of the pandemic, we need to vaccinate people, uh, but that needs to be done across the world by uh, in, in all countries, uh, because if the pandemic continues, you get these virus mutations, uh, and if we want to restore our economy, uh, which for many people is the prime uh, the prime things, and if we want to restore our uh, our usual life, I mean everybody needs to be vaccinated. Therefore, you need to have vaccines. 
So there has been a lot of public investment in vaccines, uh, which worked very, uh, very well. I mean, uh, we have uh, we have a, a number of vaccines, all funded or, or mostly funded through public uh, money. But then you need to roll that out, uh, and for that to happen, uh, it needs to be rolled out across the world in all countries uh, and. Uh, that means also developing countries, countries which are uh, not so rich, need to be able to require uh, acquire uh, vaccines. Now, they have set up this complicated mechanism uh, at global level, uh, this COVAX and uh, uh, Gavi uh, forms and all these acronyms they use. Um, and we have always thought, uh, we and other organizations have always thought that's not enough. I mean, it's it's more important to make vaccines available free uh, to all and for a solidarity of the rich to developing countries for that to happen. And the best way to do that is to make it possible for developing countries to also produce vaccines uh, themselves, to have their own production capacity to do that and for that to happen. Uh, you need this waiver of intellectual property rights, uh, actually a possibility which does exist under world uh, trade uh, organization rules, um, so that the intellectual property only vaccines becomes available uh, to, to everybody and uh, vaccines can be uh, produced cheaply uh, and everywhere. Now, the rich countries, uh, which have the companies, the big pharma companies who produce those vaccines, have opposed, uh, have opposed this um, and uh, have been blocking uh, the waiver policies despite the demands of, I think, most of the developing world, uh, led by India and South Africa, uh, to, make, uh, to, to have this uh, waiver. And uh, India and uh, South Africa and other developing countries where supported by an enormously broad coalition of organizations. The trade unions, all of them are in favor uh, across the world, social movement organizations, NGOs, development, environmental uh, NGOs are in favor, are in favor. Most politicians uh, are in favor, including in the European Parliament, there's a majority to support uh, this, uh, this waiver and still uh, most of the governments in Europe uh, are opposing that, probably led by uh, by Germany, uh, which Merkel has been, I think, among the most outspoken uh, government leaders uh, against granting uh, a waiver. Uh, and of course, we all know the waiver is not the only solution. It's, it's, it's part of a whole range of things that need to happen also to improve uh, production capacity of vaccines uh, in developing countries. Um, but it's one element and an important element uh, of that broader uh, strategy. So we saw that the European Union uh, was not promoting the waiver and we joined the campaign uh, for the waiver uh, at European level, and there's even a European citizen initiative which says there should be not a profit from the pandemic, uh, which tries to collect enough signatures to put this uh, on the European uh, agenda despite the opposition. So that is that is why we joined and uh, what we are, um, yeah, trying to convince people to sign up to uh, to uh, to force the European Union to discuss this much more seriously than they are doing uh, nowadays. The European, the US government um, 
was also opposed. Biden changed tack uh, a bit, uh, saying we need to be open uh, to have that discussion on the waiver uh, within the World Trade Organization. And suddenly, uh, Europe's government's leaders were, were joining in uh, that they want to discuss it between what we hear from the discussions in the World Trade Organization and the TRIPS uh, Council uh, is that they are uh, very reluctantly engaging in those discussions and actually coming with proposals that delay uh, making progress. So we are very concerned about that. Uh, it's, it's not the solidarity-based approach. We need to address these, the pandemic at uh, global level. And of course, to us, it also underlines uh, what is needed. You need also uh, a public service and, and public infrastructure uh, to address this. I mean, the European Union needs to have its own production capacity uh, to, uh, to do this. And uh, we have argued that this has been one of the failures in the early days of the uh, pandemic for the European Commission not to, how do you say, operationalize, not to put into action the possibilities they have uh, to actually demand um, to, I think the English word is requisition uh, production capacity, for example, for personal protective equipment and now for vaccines uh, to uh, to do that. And uh, that, that really is showing a bias. Uh, and we come back to the earlier discussion we had, that really is showing a bias against the public service, against the public sector, against public companies in the thinking of the European Commission, not to have the foresight, not to have the um, the reaction uh, to develop its own public uh, uh, public sector uh, capacity uh, to public uh, to public companies. Uh, one of the examples we uh, we sometimes use is uh, 15 years ago. Imagine if the European uh, Commission would have created its own solar power panel. Uh, production uh, facilities, a publicly owned European company which would produce uh, solar power panels. I mean, imagine what that would have meant, not only for developing our own uh, understanding of how solar power panels work and our own capacity, but also how close, uh, how much closer we could have been uh, to uh, realizing the climate, uh, uh, climate objectives. Uh, and again, in this pandemic, having your own uh, production capacity uh, uh, would have been an enormous advantage uh, for the European Union. Let me just rewind with a phrase on, on also why we were fast. It's also because of years and years of working with organizations that defend public health. Uh, I will mention, mention Amnesty, the International Public Health Alliance and its European Antenna. Our own international sister organization, Public Services International, who's been following both the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the World Trade Organization, and knowing that this was there. So, um, you know, it's, it's also reaching out, uh, allows you to analyze the past. And what we have with the COVID uh, waiver campaign and, and with the vaccine is it's like a like a second, like a sequel of the crisis we had uh, with AIDS uh, and the campaign of South Africa saying to the big pharma, please, could you give us a generic of these people, people dying here? And, and the thing is, 20, 25 years later, we have uh, basically the same actors uh, in, a, in a more, I mean, a 
a novel, it's a thing worse or, or better, but in a, in a kind of a higher scale uh, pandemic. And, and, and we basically have the same goodies and the same buddies. And uh, well, it was a matter of also reacting to this. Um, so I think it's important also to learn from the past experience, from real uh, problems and for the proposals you had, for the solutions, that come as they were. Uh, that's what also why we were quite uh, quite uh, going, uh, reaching out beyond our normal, usual structures. Okay, so thank you for this uh, very interesting conversation, all your insightful comments and uh, the information that you provided. Uh, and before we go, because we've run out of time totally, but before we go, I'd like to invite you to make uh, some closing, general and encouraging perhaps, if, that, if, you, you, if you think that's possible, closing remarks, because everything we've spoken about uh, so far definitely speaks to, to, to uh, what Jan referred to uh, very often as the structural problem, which is you know the dominance of neoliberal austerity driven thinking uh, among the political uh, European political class or European political classes in different countries. And I, and I think that, that there is a moment emerging, and you both seem to have confirmed that during our conversation, that there is a discussion is starting on that. And there is a, an option, there is an opportunity for, uh, for the labor, uh, you know, organizations, trade unions, the, the, the uh, you know, European federations to, to make an imprint on, on this public discourse right now. And perhaps it's going to have even uh, more of an effect, uh, not only on the discourse, but actually on the political, uh, uh, well, on the structural political thinking. Is it going to be more of a, uh, of a, the lower, like, you know, the vision of Europe uh, put forward by Delors or the vision of Europe put forward by Bolkenstein. Uh, and, you know, in this, within this context, uh, you know, the unions seem to have the chance to become bigger, to become better and to become more effective. And in particular, in particular, I'd like to refer to, to or I'd like you to refer again to, uh, to what was uh, taken up previously, very briefly, that, you know, we can now organize not only workers, uh, which definitely are, you know, our core uh, membership and so on and so forth. But we could uh, uh, we could organize together with patients, uh, with interest groups, with consumers, with all those that are affected by the public services uh, being having been degraded uh, so badly. Thank you, uh, Boyan. Uh, and again, you pose uh, a whole set of uh, set set of questions there, and uh, obviously. Uh, the, the answers uh, need, need uh, would almost need to be complex uh, as well. Uh, a, 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 no, a, a note of optimism. Uh, I don't think we are in a situation in which we go in a set of more Barroso, Bolkestein type of uh, European Union. Um, uh, we are, uh, in that sense, uh, think also of, of the, the summit in Porto, the European pillar of social rights, and the uh, action plan to implement that pillar. Uh, we are we are certainly more in the direction of a Delors type vision in which there is a social dimension in Europe that needs to be built and extended. So that confirms what we have said earlier. There is an opportunity. There is a realization that uh, there is a possibility of change in the European Union and possibly also in other uh, European countries. But that optimism is also tempered by uh, what we do see in the European Union some more authoritarian regimes. Uh, uh, we haven't talked about it a lot, but uh, in Hungary and, and most recently with the adoption of the law against uh, 
the LGBTIQ uh, communities, uh, the same uh, you see in Poland, you're probably much more aware uh, than me of that, uh, in which there is also an authoritarian uh, regime and, and the support it has, uh, they have in countries like Slovenia, uh, even the Czech Republic. Uh, and so um, the, the, these, these are also forces we have to confront. Uh, and some of these regimes do have uh, a bit of uh, support in broader uh, layers of the population. And that's, I think, what we have to uh, counter by working together with many different organizations who want a progressive vision of society, a vision for more equality, or what I often say, a vision of a society in which men and women and our environment are not exploited. And that we have to build on. That's also our input into the discussions on the Future of Europe uh, conference, which is now ongoing. Uh, the dimension of building uh, the social dimension, and for us, an opportunity to make clear uh, that the Europe, which had the vision of, if you want, Barroso and others, after the 2008 uh, financial crisis with a reduced role for public services through cuts uh, and austerity, uh, that that uh, that view of Europe uh, is not the one citizens want. Uh, the Gilets Jaunes uh, protest in France, uh, which started some years ago, um, where about public services? No, where about the uh, the the closure of the local hospital? Where about the closure of the railway connections? Uh, and these. Uh, uh, th that is the sense we need to get across in the Future of Europe conference, that that's not the Europe we want. Uh, we need a Europe uh, which builds progressively for all its people, uh, based on equality and our values. Uh, and certainly we as European Trade Union Federation and our affiliates can play a big role in that and realizing that opportunity for structural change. All right, uh, Pablo, thank you. And Pablo, last 30 seconds of the program, they go to you. Yeah, I'm going to make a very a metaphor. I don't know if you've seen the never-ending story. But there is this kind of dark thing that eats everything and they need to... But I think this is a bit what's happening. We have a vision of the society, uh, which is, let's say, the far right, the stream right, that doesn't build anything. It's just based on, on, on opposing. And, <clears throat> and as soon as you approach to this, which is what Barroso and, and Bolkenstein and basically were promoting, what you... and you know, throughout the years, what you get is Brexit or yellow vests or these kind of things. Um, <clears throat> it's up to them. I mean, we do not have the, we can have a vision, we can have a proposal uh, against, that we can oppose it, but that's what has created. It's pretty objective. And what we need is another vision. Well, Europe is possible. That uh, was a slogan put through. But I think it's clearly the time to basically come with a brand new set of new ideas, new alternatives. To basically say it's, it's, it's up to you. You can destroy or you can build. And uh, they're proposing destruction. We're proposing a, a new, more, uh, better, more democratic, more social, more just society. So th this is uh, what's uh, on the table, I think. Okay. Uh, thanks so much. And on this, uh, 
optimistic and inspiring notes, uh, I'd like to end the program today. I'd like to thank you, Jan, and thank you, Pablo, uh, very much for being with us and for having uh, this informative and insightful conversation. I'd like to thank our viewers for being with us, uh, and I'd like to invite them to please go ahead and hit the subscribe button, the bell button, all of the buttons, and uh, stay healthy, keep fighting. We'll be back very soon with the next edition of Absu Podcasts. Thank and you. And success to everybody with your struggles. Bye. Bye-bye.